Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. The world needs to hear your message and your story, so don't deny the world of that gift within you that the universe has given you. Someone out there needs to hear your story because it will support them in feeling hope, inspired, and even transformed. Do you want to discover how I help get my clients out of their own way, show up, and confidently share their message? I would love to extend an invitation to you to join me in my free masterclass, Start Your Own Podcast from Idea to Implementation, on Wednesday, April 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find the registry link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography Podcast. Today, my guest is Michelle Hurlbert. She is the founder, educator, and coach at 3D Life. Welcome, Michelle. How are you doing this morning? Hi, good morning, Brad. I'm doing very well, thanks. Very, very happy to be here. Love it. And I'm very happy to have you here. Thank you so much for taking and making the time to be here with me today. I am really excited to jump in and get started and learn and share all about the bright, beautiful light that you're putting out into the world. So with that being said, let's jump right in. How long did you or have you been working in education as an educator, Michelle? I had been in education for a little over 20 years. Okay. I Yeah, I went overseas when I graduated from university with my Bachelor of Education and traveled to South Korea, went to the Philippines and worked in both places as an educator for a number of years. And, and so then, what was... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. My no, apologies. No, sorry. And then returned back to Nova Scotia and continued my career here. And so what was the inspiration for you to start your career out as an educator? That's a really interesting question because <laughs> like lots of educators will say, I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a teacher. I didn't. It was in high school that I decided that going into education would be a good path for me to follow. When I was younger, my dad used to say, you know, Michelle, he said, with your voice and how you can project it, you'll either end up in the military or in education. <laughs> and- <laughs> And I I went the education route, which I was very thankful to do. (laughs) Now, you've had an on and off again relationship from from what I've seen with your bio and talking to you with the public school education system. So what is or was it that kept drawing you back into the traditional teaching role? The opportunity to make a difference, the, the opportunity to be involved in something bigger knowing that there are definitely issues to solve things to that could be done differently and improve on the things that are being done in in the education system there is a, a lot of opportunity to build relationships and make differences in people's lives not only students but in uh, adults lives as well that kept just pulling me back into that fold and so what excites or lights you up the most then about teaching and being an educator it comes back to that idea of building relationships and making connections. It really, in terms of students, and I, I believe this of all human beings, it only takes one person in your life to make a difference. Yeah. And while you might not be that one person for everybody, 
you could be that one person for someone. And that sounds really cliche or it sounds kind of like, I don't know what the word is right now, but pie in the sky perhaps. But it's true. Research has shown that it only takes one person to make a difference in someone's life. And that's despite your age. No, I agree with you. I think you one person can turn someone's life around with being there as a support system or help or with words of wisdom or guidance or any of that. I, I agree with you 100%. Absolutely. Awesome. Now, on the flip side of that, Michelle, what were the catalysts that pulled you away or drove you away from the traditional teaching roles within the public school education system? When I was... Early on in my career back in Nova Scotia, I started to understand that for myself personally, being in front of a classroom, just a classroom full of students, trying to teach outcomes and meet all of the curriculum guidelines and whatnot, I I wasn't fulfilled by that. I knew there was more to being an educator than helping students get good grades. Right. And and it wasn't that the grades and the academics and the the learning piece wasn't important. It was that we were missing such a big part of the rest of the kid, the rest of their life in terms of relationship skills and managing emotions and figuring out how to best problem solve. That I was looking at kids in my classroom who had, who didn't have friends, who were struggling with the idea of, you know, what's going to happen when I go home today or, you know, the the outside things that in education we have, there's such an, an ideal bubble that we can get into as educators, as school communities, that school is this little ideal place and that everybody is supposed to meet that ideal. And that's not the reality for people in general, whether you're adults or students. So how has the world of being an educator evolved from when you first started your career up to your latest foray in it? And has it changed for the better or has it gotten progressively worse in terms of responsibilities, curriculum, etc.? I feel that when I started in Nova Scotia in 2006, There was a lot more flexibility. There was a lot more autonomy that I had as an educator and that my colleagues had as educators on how we taught and what we taught when we wanted to teach it. And there weren't as many expectations of meetings and paperwork and all of the things that kind of bug teachers down and educators down now, that has changed a lot. And I'm not saying that that's not, not for the better in terms of accountability and helping students get what they need in education. But I also believe that not having that sense of autonomy or that the, that the art of teaching is kind of being lost because it's becoming so prescriptive with yearly plans and, you know, math and literacy programs saying, you know, in September you do this, in November you do this. And if you're not here in this math curriculum by a certain point, then there's a problem. And so there's, there's that art of teaching and being able to not feel as pressured to tick off the boxes and check off the, the tasks that need Mm -hmm. to be accomplished. I think that's a 
a missing part of remembering the joy yeah. of teaching. How much input do you teachers have? Because, I mean, I'm just thinking back to when my girls were in elementary school and, and those early grades, and I just thought, in my opinion, the shit they were teaching them was useless, and they weren't teaching them stuff that was valuable that they could use. I mean, my girls, they didn't even teach the girls long division or times tables or any of that stuff. And I thought, what the hell are you people doing? <laughs> Like, what the fuck is wrong? These these are basic principles. You need to know how to multiply any throughout the rest of your life. You need yeah. those things. You need to know how to divide. And, and I just thought, what the fuck are you people doing? Yeah, that's always a, a point of contention with the general public. You know, what is actually being taught in schools? In Nova Scotia, anyway, and I know you're in Ontario, so there is a curriculum that's laid out, set out by the province, that's put together by the Department of Education and researchers and whomever. Once that curriculum is laid out, it tends to be there for many years before it shifts. Okay. So lots of times new initiatives will come in, new pilot projects will show up, but yet the curriculum is still meant to be taught. Oftentimes, people in the department will say, or the department, maybe just the Department of Education, will say, we want your input on this. And they'll okay. do surveys and they'll ask questions. And it seems as though while they have that feedback and that input, it always seems to lean toward what they wanted to do in the first place. Right. And how they want it to be in the first place. So they'll <laughs> do the performative pieces. Yeah. Say, we want your input. We want your feedback. <sighs> but yet... It really doesn't matter what you say because we're going to do it our way or we're going to do it the way we want to do it anyway. They're just doing it for appearance sake to say that they asked. That's all. Yes. Short <laughs> I, answer. I, yes. <laughs> I, I think it's complete bullshit. In my opinion, they're just teaching the kids now how to memorize and regurgitate. They're not learning anything. It's it's ridiculous. Like what happened to home economics and shop and things? And I understand there's budget cuts and all of these things, but I mean, teach these kids things that they can use in their lives. The the math when my girls were in was all word problems. Like what the fuck are you doing? It drove me up a wall because there's nothing that we can do about it. Yeah, and it's frustrating. It's frustrating for parents. It's frustrating for for educators. I'm um, sure because we see the things that are needed that students need in the moment. You know, developmentally, socially, emotionally, and yet we're told, "Thou shalt do this and make sure that you're doing it, or else you're not an effective teacher, or you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing." I'm curious, does this have anything to do with as well, depending upon the area in which the school is and the influence of the committees, the parents, the people with money, does that have any effect on what gets taught in the schools as well? Like the people with money that are contributing to the school funds and whatnot? Well, but we're very fortunate in Nova Scotia because a lot of regions, a lot of school districts still have home economics or family, they call it family right. studies and nutrition here. Yeah. They, we have tech ed. We have programs that are related to technology advancement. And so I feel in Nova Scotia, we're quite forward thinking 
Yeah. At the moment, that hasn't always been the case. <laughs> but at the moment, it, you know, there are programs and things happening in education here that are more related to and and applicable to the way that society is moving and, and changing. That doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't right. mean that there couldn't be more happening for sure. But there are definitely steps in the right direction. I just think that they need to be teaching stuff to kids that they could actually use in their lives. Like teach them about finances, teach them about banking, teach them again, home ec and these other things that life skills that they can actually use as yeah. they get out of school. I don't know. It, it, it boggles my mind. I mean, when I think back to when I was, we, we learned multiplication, our times tables, long division, all of these things. And again, only knowing because my girls being in school, they're now 22 and 24. But when they were in elementary school, it's like, what the hell are you kids do? Like, what is this? <laughs> I, it just, it blew my mind. And the yeah. fact that the parents don't have any say or input as to what their children are learning. And I'm, the more women I'm speaking to through the podcast, the more women I'm finding are pulling their kids out of the traditional school system and homeschooling because they're just so fed up with the bullshit in the school system. And I think there's a lot to be said in that, yeah. that people are, are choosing to do that. It makes me, from from my perspective at this point, being outside of the education system now, people need to start listening to the educators in the schools and start looking at what things need to come off of their plates so that yeah. they can focus on other things, so that they can focus on the things that matter more. And yeah. I think there's so many expectations and pressures and stress associated with being in education now as an educator. I mean, we have a shortage of teachers, a shortage of substitute teachers at the moment. And, you know, the system itself isn't doing itself any favors because it's it's not listening what people need. Well, I think that the system should be listening to the parents. They're the ones who are sending their kids there. And you would think that the education system and the people within it that have the power to make change would see the changes and the shifts that are happening in terms of more and more parents pulling their kids out of the school system because they're so fed up with it. Yes. I, I know. Like, don't the, they care? Don't they give a shit? Well, and I think on the flip side of that, it would be like, if we think about educators, I mean, We've gone to school, we've gone, yeah. we've done the degrees, we've learned how to do this. There are new innovations and new initiatives coming out all the time. There's research being done constantly. And so to accept or to acknowledge at least that the professionalism that's in education is important because you probably, and maybe you would, but to walk into a doctor's office or to walk into a lawyer's office and tell them how they need to do their job and what they need to be focusing on or what they need. That doesn't happen as often as it does to people in education. Right. So, you know, the education system is a public system. Yeah. And so we are at the kind of privy of, of people, the public, having mm -hmm. their opinions and saying what they think should be happening sometimes without always knowing what else is going on. There's always more to the story. Of course. And so just kind of, you know, yes, absolutely. Parents have 100% autonomy, 100% of what they want their kids to be doing for sure. And so, you know, if, if 
parents are choosing to pull their kids out of school and homeschool them, fantastic. But it's it's also a matter of communication and the relationships that you build with the schools and with the people in them and vice versa, that educators are building those relationships with parents as well. So uh, there's always more to it than just that black and white one. And yeah, yeah, understood. And I'm sure that some of the teachers in the system are frustrated, just as frustrated as the parents with how things are being done, because a lot of you went to school when, you know, like thinking about me when I was back in school and those things that we learned. So I'm sure a lot of the teachers are frustrated too. Yes. And overwhelmed and stressed and not feeling at the end of the day that they're doing enough. Yeah. Going home at the end of most days and feeling like you're not effective or you could have done more or you're not finished some of the things on your long list of things to do and, and feeling like deflated, feeling defeated sometimes that you're just not good enough yeah and and that's hard to show up every day and be that person that those kids need when you're not feeling that you're enough for them i'm sure so in your opinion then how do we begin to repair and fix these issues that are plaguing the school systems that's a huge question (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a huge question i believe one of the first things that could be done is to really listen, it comes down to communication, listening to what people who are in the schools have to say, but also that those people in the schools recognize that those in regional offices or school district offices and above in the department, you know, there are mandates and there are things coming at them that they need to push through too. So it's a general understanding of people's roles yeah. and listening to what is really needed. One of the things that I I noted and really draw a lot of information from in terms of working in schools was that each school in and of itself, even if you're in one school district, each school is its own community. Each school, right. you know, is driven by the external influences and internal influences of whomever is in that building and the experiences that they've had within the community at large. To make blanket initiatives and say, okay, this is what we're going to do as a province, or this is what we're going to do as a region or a district, and say, this is going to be great for our students, this is going to be great for you, but not take into account the the nuances and the differences that each school has. Right. Mm-hmm. And so... I think that that, that's another big part of it is making sure that what is coming out in terms of new initiatives or it's actually addressing the needs of each school environment and each community of people in the district. That makes sense. Okay. So if you were to compile a wish list of problems and you could cross one of those things off the list with the snap of your fingers, what would be at the top of the list? In terms of... Like what I would fix in education or (laughs) there's a a gap in education and it's been researched. It's been talked about. It's been people have tried to address it. And the gap in education that gets talked about and spoken of is that academic achievement or marginalized communities aren't achieving in the way that they 
could be, should be. That's okay. that's the one that gets talked about. I believe there's another gap in education that would help that gap. And that gap is we need to take care of the adults. What about the adults? Because in education, everything is focused on the students, which is great. Right. It, that's, you know, that's the way it should be. But education in and of itself is meant to be a human development system, okay. not an academic system. And when we look at how we help students be successful in their lives, if we only focus on the academics, then we're missing the rest of the human development piece. But when we're not taking care of the adults in the system, those who are overwhelmed and stressed and feeling like they're not enough and not good enough, and that their well-being is being impacted by their work and workplaces, how are those adults meant to show up to the best of their ability and teach and be available to the students in the ways that they need them to be? Very true. And for me, that's a, a massive gap in the system and lots of times gets met with, well, you're an adult, you figure it out. You figure out your own well-being. <laughs> You should know how to do this. This is your job. Wow. And while there are friendly messages out there that will say, you know, we care about the well-being of our educators. We care about, you know, the health of our school communities and whatnot. And there's a lot of people doing great work toward that. It still needs to be shown and demonstrated by the people who are making the decisions that it's important. It needs to be put into action and not just words. Yeah, because otherwise it's just lip service. It doesn't mean shit. Right, right. I mean, in our local school district, we have an active healthy living consultant who works toward health promoting schools and works toward having conversations with adults too about their health and well-being. And we have a great social emotional learning initiative here in our local school district too, but it's not just making it yet another performative task yeah saying this is important we care about you show it like yeah start making some decisions and putting it into action that really truly make a difference put your money where your mouth is right so let's do something about it. your talk all this talk is great but yeah. if you're not putting it into action what good is it and you're right the the adults need the support too if you adults are expected to show up 100% for your children that you're teaching, then the adults should be getting support too. Right. 100%. Right. I mean, we're all human. Yeah, all of course. Reach, this is something that has always boggled my mind. Just because we reach a certain age mm -hmm. doesn't mean that we have our shit together. No, of course doesn't not. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that, that we always know better. We don't have all the answers, and I don't think we're ever meant to have all the answers no. because being a lifelong learner is about recognizing what do I, where am I at, and where do I need to grow? Where do I yeah. need to improve or get better? Or yeah. And that's, I think, a very, it, it's be the same in healthcare. Yeah. You know, our nurses, our doctors, our healthcare system is under stress and overwhelm and duress for the last many years, not just yeah. even prior to the pandemic. And the pandemic exacerbated the issues within. It just, it just shone a, shone a light on it. Yeah, really. exactly. Exactly. But we could say the exact same thing about people in the healthcare system, that they're stressed, they're overwhelmed, 
They're yep. tired. They're burning out. Well, nurses are leaving in mass exodus yes. because they can't deal with it. It's it's too much. They're expected yeah. too much. Right. And and so I think bringing back that human centered, remembering that the employees are humans. Yeah. And yep. that they have needs and wants and dreams and goals and things as well that need to be acknowledged and health concerns yeah. that need to be acknowledged. Well, we are all human beings, not human doings. Exactly. And yes. people need to realize that, right? Yes. And and so compassion, some empathy and some compassion in the education system and in the healthcare system from from the decision makers would be highly, highly desirable. For sure. I want to speak a little bit about your coaching. As mentioned, you are a coach. How long have you been a coach now? I became a coach in 2018. I had known for a long time that I had wanted to do a coaching certification. In the last five years that I was in my education career, I worked as a social and emotional learning coach. So I helped teachers. I supported teachers going into classrooms and, and schools with implementing a program that would help teach students more about self-awareness, self-management, being aware of others and getting along with others, leadership skills and decision-making. And I knew while doing that, that I wanted to be a coach because I started realizing more and more that while all of our focus was rightfully so on the students, it also needed to be divided. There also needed to be focus on the adults. And I knew for myself personally that I was a professional. I've done lots of amazing things in my life. I, you know, I, I, I loved my life, uh-huh. but I didn't have all my shit together. And so if I didn't, then who else didn't? And so I realized that there was, again, this gap that wasn't being addressed and I tried to address that gap within the education system, but there's lots of red tape and restrictions and whatnot that come up and, and change is slow in a system that big. Yeah. Um, so I decided that it was time for me to do my coaching certification, my life and leadership coach certification, and start looking at starting a, a side business in 2018. You can only take so much, right? And I mean, we could talk for this whole episode could be about the school <laughs> system and the education system, but yes, there are many more important things to talk about in terms of the work you do. So I've heard a lot of people say that most, if not all coaches have been through their own personal struggles and journeys before making the leap into coaching. I mean, we've all, we've all had our struggles. We're human beings. We have to deal with shit in life. And that's just part of our journey as human beings. But what I have found though, is that for most of the people that I speak with who are now coaches, their personal struggles and journeys are the catalyst for becoming a coach. Can you share a little bit about yours? and what the journey you were on before making the leap into the coaching world. I know you briefly touched on it, but could you share a little bit more? Sure. So one of the things I was thinking about leading up to this interview was I know that you talk with women about what their struggles have been in life. And and there's always a story. Everybody has a story. I agree with you. Everyone has a story. There are three things that have shaped who I am to this point in my life. And three major things. There are lots of other things, of course, but three major things. And one of them was deciding to become an educator. And and the second is traveling because Uh 
I was able to do that as an educator. And the third one was alcohol. And alcohol as a drug has been normalized for eons. It's something that is an acceptable thing to partake in, so to speak. And alcohol was one thing, and this is the exclusive, Brad. I've never talked about this okay. with anybody before. <laughs> well, thank you. I feel honored, truly. Thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing. Alcohol was, and while I know it now, I didn't know it then, was my way of breaking free from the expectations I had on myself and the expect my perceived expectations of what others had on me. And alcohol allowed me to quote unquote, have the freedom to just be and to relax and to not feel like I had to always be on. This was something that I enjoyed alcohol, but I also really struggled with it because of the self-loathing, the self-judgment, the guilt, the shame that would come after a night of partying or a weekend or whatever. And when I finally started to recognize that there were destructive patterns happening or the function of what it was doing for me was keeping me from really being myself and accepting myself, that's when I started the work of, okay, what do I need to find out for myself about myself that will ultimately help me not use alcohol in the same way? And tomorrow's my birthday. I'll be 49 tomorrow. And it was my late 30s, early 40s before I got that lesson, before I realized there were things I needed to change. Wow. Well, first of all, Michelle, thank you very much for being so vulnerable and sharing that part of your journey, your struggles. I truly am honored to have shared in that with you. Second, happy early birthday. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Just truly thank you for sharing that. And so that realization was part of your shift or catalyst to get into the coaching world as well as doing the self-work. Yes. Because from the outside looking in, most, not all, those who knew me better or had experienced me, so to speak, those on the outside looking in, for most people, I had my shit together. I was, you know, down to earth. I was approachable. I, you know, I would show up. I was reliable. But that was just the front I put on. And on the inside, it was... I'm not good enough. I don't know what I'm doing. If anybody really found out who I was or who I am, then they wouldn't think the same way about me. But I had those thoughts of myself and often would not believe people if I got a compliment or if somebody said, you know, something nice about me or something like positive feedback. I mean, I would say thank you. But in my head, I would go, "Mm, yeah, I don't really believe that. Yeah because I didn't believe it for myself and knowing, thinking about the things that I had done in my life and the bad decisions that I made. And, you know, those things fueled that continued sense of you have to keep this facade up. You have to keep making people think that you're okay. Until I finally said, this is exhausting. I feel like I'm living a double life. I can't do this anymore. And started the self-work, started looking inside and doing the the inner work that really 
it requires a lot of effort, but it also requires that you're ready to do it. But it's so absolutely. Worth it. Well, kudos to you for doing it. And I mean, that work never stops. We've always got to, we've got to continue working on ourselves. We are never finished. We are always evolving. We're human beings. We're going to continually evolve and we have to continually work on ourselves because that relationship that we have with ourselves is the longest standing and most important relationship we will ever have in the duration of our lives. So yes. we have to work on it. You you have to see your worth and, and know that you're worth it and put in the work. Yes, 100%. And that's one of the biggest things that, you know, working in education, I was about. I was about the human being, the whole human being. And yeah. with 3D Life Inc., that's where 3D Life comes from, that three-dimensional whole person, whether you're an educator or a leader or an organizational, an executive director, that whole person is part is the person who shows up to work every day the person who shows up in your life every day it's like john cabot zinn he's the mindfulness-based stress reduction founder he he has a book called wherever you go there you are and if you're not okay with you if you don't have a good solid relationship with yourself then it makes it much more difficult to have good solid relationships with other people and to lead others effectively. Absolutely. 100%. So how have these experiences then helped shape the Michelle you are today, both personally and professionally, do you think? I have much better boundaries today. (laughs) (laughs) I'm much more aware. I I listen to myself more. I, Mm. I am much more aware of when I'm uncomfortable, when I'm super excited about something. That autopilot, Michelle, is gone. Not a hundred percent of the time, of course, because I'm I'm not perfect and there's no such right. thing as perfection. Yeah. But I, I do have much better boundaries. It's much easier for me to say no now. It's much No easier. is a complete sentence. No <laughs> is a complete sentence. <laughs> and I don't worry as much about I worry more about being true to myself than about hurting somebody else's feelings by speaking a truth or by being who I am. And you have to, and that's not selfish. No. Self-care, self-preservation is not selfish. Right. At At hundred percent. And self-care in and of itself, you know, it's become a buzzword and I I have talked about this before, but self-care has become such a buzzword that people don't seem to be, they don't listen to it anymore it's just oh are you taking care of yourself oh is you, are you practicing self-care and at 3d life inc we i talk about self-care not as you know going for the massage once a yeah. month or having the bubble bath or those treats i call them treats and they're lovely and i think they you know do them but if you're not looking at self-care as also the quality of your sleep the amount of movement that you're getting in the day. And that doesn't necessarily mean exercise, just move. Um, Connecting with people who care about you, that you enjoy, who you're comfortable being around. And nutrition, you know, fueling your body with good enough food and making conscious decisions about that. Again, doesn't have to be perfect, but better. And we go a bit, a step above that in thinking about self-care also as compassion for yourself looking at like doing some of that inner work where what's the quality of your self-talk? How do you talk to yourself? Self-love. Self-love, self-worth, 
Yeah, um, for sure. And so how are you leading yourself effectively in your life so that you can show up in it the best version of you you can be for other people? Love it. What then was the biggest or most valuable takeaway or lesson for you through your experiences? Oh, gosh, that's a huge question, too. (laughs) (laughs) Coming to the realization that all of the successes that I've had or all of the achievements that I've had in my life, you know, traveling or education wise, you know, getting my master's of education and leadership in mental health education was a huge achievement for me. But even with that, the biggest thing that has made me celebrate where I am right now is coming to accept myself for who I am and wanting to help others do the same. That's beautiful. I want to talk a little bit more about the coaching industry and get your thoughts on the current status of the coaching industry. I mean, through conversations, again, that I've had with multiple women who work in the industry, some of them don't even like to use the word coach. They prefer guide or mentor because of the bad rep that the coaching industry gets with all of these get get rich quick things. And I can, I can, if you pay me 10 grand, I can make you a six figure coach in six months and all of this bullshit. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as a coach. I would be on this on their side with that. I do struggle with calling myself a coach, not because that's not what I do because the, the actions I perform are coaching. It's coaching that I do, but because of the industry being so unregulated that anybody can go to a day long workshop or weekend workshop and get certified as a coach and hang their shingle and say, Hey, I'm a coach. That doesn't rub me the right way. Yeah. I don't like calling myself a life coach for that very reason. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The industry is crazy from all the conversations I've had. It's just, it's mind blowing and you're right. There's no regulation and what can be done about it? I mean, it's ultimately up to the client who's looking for their coach and their right coach. But it's sad because so many people get fucked over thinking that they're going to become these coaches by these people that, you know, they should not be teaching people how to become coaches. Well, I think on the flip side of that, when you sign up for a coaching program or when even as a client, when you sign up to have a coach to work through either life vision or or work stuff, any program, it doesn't matter what you do, if it's a degree, if it's a coaching program, anything you do as an individual or as a collective, if you're doing it together as a team, still requires that you show up in it and that you do the work. Yeah. And that you follow through with what you're being taught. Absolutely. And so there are great coaching programs out there, those that train coaches to be coaches, and there are abysmal ones. It does come back to doing your homework if you're yeah. choosing to do a program or you're choosing a coach to work with a coach. Doing your homework, meeting the people and having conversations with them. Does How does this feel to you? Does it seem like a good fit? And being realistic about what your expectations are of the program itself. What is this actually going to give me? What are you willing to follow through on? How much work are you willing to do in order to be the best you can at the end of it? Because that's the thing about coaching. And I tell all of my clients before I work with them, coaching, I'm not going to give you advice when I coach you. I'm not going to 
tell you what you need to do. The power of coaching is asking you questions that help you get to the answers yourself, because I truly believe that we have the answers within us. It just requires someone sometimes to- Some guidance. Pull them out, guide them, support them through it, to take action on it. Because sometimes the things that you're doing are, they're big and they're uncomfortable. And having someone to engage with and get, get clear on things with is is really a, a powerful way of moving forward in life. So what is it that sets you and the work you do apart from other coaches? Why would they choose to work with you over someone else? I was thinking about this question as well. <laughs> and when it comes right down to it, the work that I do at 3D Life Inc. as a coach, as an educator, isn't necessarily new. It's not new for coaches to talk about vision and clarifying your vision or getting clear on your big picture. It's not new for coaches to help you through limiting beliefs and looking at the quality of your self-talk. What is different about working with me for the sake of sounding, I'm not braggy, but is me and my experiences that I've had, who I am as a, as a human being and as a coach, but I'm not for everybody just as everybody's not for me which makes me come back to the idea of do your homework. If someone's looking for a coach, if you're looking to have a coach, meet them, Like go through, pick five. Most coaches have a 15 minute discovery call or 30 minute discovery call where you can meet them and you can get a sense of who they are and what they're about. And if they're the right fit for you, do that. Take advantage of that. Some people are really good salespeople though. They are. (laughs) They are. Yes. But then if that's the case, then again, listen to yourself. Like how does that feel? Do you feel like you're being snake oiled? Like you've got the snake oil salesman at your door and they're just trying to get you in because they want to take your money? Or do you really feel like that person is genuinely interested in helping you with what you're looking to shift? And when you start listening to ourselves, to that intuition, that gut feeling, you know, at the end of a call, did that feel good or did that feel a little off? Simple question. Yeah, very true. And it's okay to say, I need to think about it. And if anybody pressures you at the end of that phone call and says, what are you objecting to? What are you not sure about? (laughs) I know. See, maybe I shoot myself in the foot here, but... It's important that the person you're going to work with is ready to work with you when you're ready to do the work. Yeah, for sure. What, in your opinion, is the most important or one of the most important quality or skill sets in a coach? Empathy. Being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes to have the knowledge of what it feels like to be where they're at is very important. And listening. Listening so that I can ask those powerful questions. If I am not listening to someone well enough, then that's not engagement. That's me spending an, an hour or half an hour with somebody while they talk and I and we do small talk. Yeah. It's, it's important that coaches listen so that they can pick out the pieces that the person who's speaking, the client who's speaking might not be picking up on. So empathy, listening, and having a knowledge base, not only like an education base or or a, a training piece, but 
experience with what it is that they're working on and what it is that they say they claim they can do as a coach. Now, you work with a lot of professionals around leadership, thought leadership, and I would imagine mindset is also a big part of that work. So what makes a successful thought leader, in your opinion? First of all, and it comes back to the question I just answered, is having knowledge, of course, of what it is that you are being a thought leader within. Experience is helpful, very helpful, because I can have all the knowledge that I want, but if I haven't had experience putting it into practice, then anybody could gain that same knowledge and say the same things and do the same, the, the right. same things with it. So experience is important, but it's not just knowledge and experience. It's, I think, also recognizing that you don't know what you don't know and being willing to stretch yourself, being willing to go after and find out and find ways to express that thought, express that thought leadership in ways that resonate with other people. And whether that's as a leader in general, you know, leadership has been a very performative endeavor for many years. And I maybe I should just say bad leadership has been performative in many ways for many years. Good leadership is starting to come around more to the idea that the human side of of leadership is just as important, if not more so than all the performative tasks. So it's, again, it's coming back to that, being willing to recognize that there are things you don't know and that's Uh okay, but then acknowledging, okay, how do I find out, how do I do better or be better in this particular area? What is one tip or takeaway that listeners can implement immediately to start stepping into and embracing their inner leader and begin owning that? Great question. The first thing I would say is being aware that there is room for you to grow and to stretch, but accepting that too. It's much easier to say, I don't have time. It's too much work. I'm too busy. Then it is to say, okay, What could happen, what could be different if I were to make myself a priority, make my leadership a priority? What could be the results of that? And imagining what that could be like if to to step into that. Visualization is a big part of what I do when I first start working with people. And it's more of creating a big picture. Yeah. And so that first step is always, am I ready And if you're not ready, sometimes you just have to take the leap anyway, because Mm -hmm. most scary things, you're never going to be truly ready. Yeah, there's never a perfect time to do those things. Right. So I think it's being aware of what your strengths are and where you'd like to feel better about, where you'd like to step into that bigger next level vision of, of who you are and who you want to be. I like that you said focus on where your strengths are because, I, and this has come up a fair bit lately for me in conversation and whatnot and thinking about it. And, you know, we are taught and brought up and conditioned as we're growing up that, you know, if you're not good at something, you've got to work harder at it. You've got to get better at it. Instead of turning around and saying, well, let's look at what you are good at and let's focus on 
enhancing that and growing that. Why, again, I know it's conditioning, but we have to shift that. Focus, have people focus on what they're good at and grow and expand in that. Because again, we can always be improving. We can always grow. We can always expand. Don't worry about trying to be good at everything or be better at everything else. Focus on what you're good at and leave the other stuff for the people that are good at that. Exactly. A hundred percent. And I talk to clients about this and, and in leadership conversations, it's what are your strengths? What are you good at? And then how do you then find people on staff or in your teams that can do the things that you don't feel you're as good at? Because exactly. as a leader, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be great at everything. That's right. Leadership is about those relationships and connections and knowing with whom you're working that you're able to say, I know where my strengths lie. I know what I'm good at. Now I need to find other people who are good at these other things rather than wasting your time trying to improve in these areas that A, you're probably not interested in. B, you're probably never going to be great at because it's not your, they're not your strengths. They're they're called strengths for a reason. And again, a great leader has the ability and the vulnerability to say, I'm not sure of this answer. I don't know (laughs) about this right now. Yeah. Let me find out. Or does anybody else have an answer for this or a thought on this that could help? Yeah. 100%. That is such a key skill. Yes, for sure. 100% is being able to own and know that you don't know everything. Yes. And it makes you human. Yeah. It makes you relatable, more relatable too. Exactly. I mean, so many times, and I talk about this, actually, it's part of, I'm in the process of writing a book. And one of the things that I talk about is, you know, being relatable as a human being is an important part of being a leader, because if you are letting people that you work with perceive you as perfect and that you have everything together and that you don't have any gaps in who you are as a human being or as a leader. That means that everybody else feels that they have to also show up that way, that they can't be human. (laughs) They can't have the human experience at work that they have to be perfect. That's a lot of pressure and a lot of stress to put on people. For sure. Absolutely. Okay, I want to jump into a little rapid fire section here. So the next grouping of questions just be two, three, four word answer type thing. Okay. Okay. How would you describe yourself in one word? I guess it would be, I go between deep and passionate. Okay. What was your dream job as a child? (laughs) A horse trainer. Okay. If you're writing your autobiography, what would the title be? You're enough. What is your favorite self-care practice? Compassion and meditation. What never fails to make you laugh? Quick wit. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? Making a difference in non-traditional ways in education. That concludes our rapid fire section. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. What challenge in your life has shaped you the most? That's a great question. I would say probably the challenge with alcohol and how I felt it served me at the time and coming to understand what was going on that made me feel like I needed to use alcohol in that way. What's something surprising you've learned about yourself in the last year? Surprising. 
that I need, I need to have heat in my life. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) I recently got back from the Dominican. I was gone for five weeks and working vacation. And yeah, I just, I realized, wow. I, I mean, I lived in the Philippines for six and a half years, but didn't realize how much I truly missed being in a tropical heat environment. <laughs> well, you're living in the wrong country. Then, yeah, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> What's one lesson your career has taught you that you think everyone should learn at some point in their life? That work is not everything. That the work identity that you have or the identity that you shape around yourself and build around yourself because of your work is only one aspect of you that there's so much more that needs to be celebrated and acknowledged and addressed. Work is not everything. Good point. What would you say is the biggest thing you did or are doing that has helped you achieve the freedom to do the things you enjoy? Saying yes to myself, saying yes to the kind of life that I want for myself and ultimately in the service of others. What does the word empowerment mean to you? Empowerment for me is understanding who I am and owning that. If you had the opportunity to sit down and have a one-hour conversation with one woman, any woman in the world, who would it be and why? Brene Brown. She was a a very instrumental part in the beginning of my self-journey with her books and videos and teachings. I just, I feel like the work that she does around vulnerability and trauma and emotions is just such a huge part of what our society needs. And she made such a difference. Her work has made such a difference in my own life and has helped validate the path that I'm on in in such fantastic ways. And she's so human if you watch her videos like she just seems like an approachable relatable person and maybe she's not but the way that she comes across in anything that i see her in i feel like i think i her and i would be best friends if we (laughs) (laughs) i love it (laughs) she does seem very approachable for sure yeah absolutely very down to earth and very open about her own struggles or about her own challenges and, and being vulnerable and yeah how she shows up in the world. If you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? My autobiography title would be the same advice, just telling myself that you're enough and that you need to remember that, that other people don't have the power to determine your value. Love it. And lastly, Michelle, if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, your tribe, your corner of the world, your people, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? What words of wisdom would you impart? Live life, make it what you want it to be as much as you're capable of doing that. As far as we know, some people have other perceptions or other ideas. As far as we know, we only go this way once, at least consciously this way. And do the things that you want to do so that you're not at the end of your life saying, oh, I wish I had done that. 
Beautiful. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure to sit down and share in your journey with you. And thank you for your vulnerability today. And just thank you for all the beautiful work that you do and shining your bright, beautiful light out into the world through that work that you're doing. I appreciate you. And I'm honored to have you as a member of the Empowerography community. Thank you so much, Brad. It was a pleasure talking with you today. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest was Michelle Hurlbert. She is the founder, educator, and a coach at 3D Life. Thank you so much, Michelle. I hope you have an amazing rest of the day. Thanks. You as well. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca, follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast, and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.